is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Courtney Floyd, a doctoral candidate in 19th century literature and print culture at the University of Oregon. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. Welcome to the seventh episode of our summer 2018 miniseries, Victorian Adaptations, Adapting the Victorians. Today's episode is titled Visualizing the Victorians, and in this episode, I'm going to talk about comics and graphic novels which either adapt Victorian stories or present original stories set in the Victorian period, as in neo-Victorian or steampunk stories. I'm also going to talk about one of my favorite creative podcasts at the end because I forgot what this episode was supposed to be about as I was recording my last episode, and I promised you that I would. But also, and more importantly, because the podcast is amazing and they're doing a Kickstarter for season two right now, and I really, really want more. Okay, so as it happens, the Victorians themselves invented comics, at least Western comics, and either invented or perfected much of the technology used to create comics and graphic novels. So let's take a quick tour around the world of Victorian printing before we dive in. In 1835, just before the Victorian period began, George Baxter invented and patented a color printing process. Also around this time, the steam-driven platen press started being used more than slower iron hand presses for book printing. In 1837, The Adventures of Obadiah Oldbuck, the earliest known comic, was published in Europe. In the 1840s, wood pulp paper was developed, making the manufacture of books cheaper and making books more easily affordable to the masses. In 1842, the Illustrated London News began circulation. This was the first illustrated weekly, and it was immensely successful and spawned a bunch of copycat papers. It also often included a number of full-page narrative illustrations which we could consider proto-comics. In 1844, Robert Ho patented the first rotary press, and Henry Fox Talbot created the first photographically illustrated book. In the 1850s, Edmund Evans experimented with color woodblock printing and produced some of the first important color woodblock work. In the 1870s, Robert Ho invented a web-fed rotary press, which allowed printing on both sides of the page at once. In the 1880s, photographic halftone illustration came into commercial use, and this is huge for the comic world for reasons I'll talk about later. In the 1890s, illustrated covers are now related to the content of the books, rather than just decorative. In 1895, George Du Maurier's Trilby was published, and this included many, many, many illustrations because Du Maurier was, in fact, a major illustrator of his time. In 1897, an early comic, The Yellow Kid in McFadden's Flats, was published. In 1899, another important early comic, Funny Folks, was published. And in 1904, just after the Victorian period ended, the color halftone process was first used in bookwork. 
So halftone should be a term that um, rings some bells for you if you're familiar with the comic world. Um, those dots that make up images, that's halftone. And color halftone is a combination of primary colors, red, blue, and yellow, in spiraling or kind of um, windmilling patterns that creates the variation of colors in a halftone print. So before I dive into my discussion of graphic novels and comics, I just wanted to clarify something. There's a lot of overlap between the term comic and the term graphic novel in modern parlance. And um, in part, that's because some graphic novels are really just compilations or omnibuses, as they're often called, of a series of comics. But some graphic novels are written as novels from the start and are not part of a pre-existing series that's just been compiled or expanded into a, quote, novel. Um, so there's some flexibility there. So graphic novels can be comics, but not all comics turn into graphic novels, if that makes sense. I've linked to a website that provides an overview of the term, some history, and some resources if you want to dive deeper. I am by no means an expert. I have not studied this at length. This is just me doing some Googling because of um, some texts that I really like and wanted to share with you. So graphic novels. I've only got a handful of things to share with you today. As you may have noticed if you follow me on Twitter, I put out a call for recommendations and I'll either include them in this episode or just share them more on Twitter as they roll in. So the first thing I wanted to share with you today was Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Um, this is one that, of course, it's been made into a movie. I get recommended this all the time. And so from what I can tell, it's one of the major kind of quote neo-Victorian graphic novels. I'll be honest, I have tried to read this several times because I am all about Mina Murray as a protagonist, but, and this is a content warning, Mina is sexually assaulted multiple times in the first issue, uh, and all of the 19th century's worst stereotypes and behaviors seem to be present in this graphic novel without any or very many of its redeeming qualities, so I might not finish it. This is round three for me trying, and I've got about, uh, I'd say like 40 pages in maybe, and I just keep like, ugh, why am I reading this? I don't, it's not pleasant for me. Um, so, I mean, it's great. I love the art. I like the creative, uh, the, I like the premise, the combination of Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde and Stoker's Dracula and a bunch of other late century novels, but I don't know if I can get past the treatment of Mina and the uh, gender issues in the beginning. Um, anyway, I have another Alan Moore graphic novel to talk about. My advisor has recommended this to me multiple times, and I haven't had the time to check it out yet, but it seems like a solid option if you're into uh, late 19th century graphic novels, or representations of the late 19th century in graphic novels. So it's called From Hell, and it's a retelling of the Whitechapel murders and the Jack the Ripper case. So it's going to have some of the same themes I didn't like in Extraordinary Gentlemen, but for historically relevant reasons, which might 
be enough for me to be able to make it through. Um, on a much brighter note, Sydney Padua's The Thrilling Adventures of Lovelace and Babbage is um, a graphic novel that I have recently encountered. I just checked it out from my local library, so I haven't read it all the way through yet, but I'm really excited about it. If you aren't familiar with Ada Lovelace, Lord Byron's daughter, and more importantly, the first computer programmer ever, you should check out the History Checks episode on her life and then hit up this book. Basically, Ada was a brilliant and creative child, and her mother, burned by Lord Byron, pushed her into maths because it was the opposite of poetry, and the rest, as they say, is history. This graphic novel is episodic, and it presents us with a collection of Ada Lovelace's imagined adventures with Charles Babbage and the analytical engine that they never quite finished. And as I said, I apparently need to read more graphic novels because that is all I can think of at the moment. So I will link to a couple of lists of graphic novels set in the Victorian era and steampunk graphic novels in the show notes. I haven't read them. I haven't had time to read about them. I know some major graphic novel versions of Victorian classics like Jane Eyre exist. I have not, I have no experience with them, but, um worth exploring, so check out those links. And we will move on to comics and webcomics right after this break. on to comics and webcomics. Really, what this section is going to be is me talking about Kate Beaton's Hark a Vagrant website and book and Step Aside Pops. Let me just say Kate Beaton is the queen of the historical comic in my opinion. I could rave about her work all day. Um, instead, I'm going to point you to her website and her two bound collections of comics, which I've just mentioned. And in particular, her retellings of Wuthering Heights, Jane Eyre, and Dracula, which are just amazing. You should not miss these. I think a couple of these are available on her website. Um, some of them are only available in the bound editions of her work. Um, she also has some comics about Victorian authors, such as the Brontes, Edgar Allan Poe, and Jules Verne, which are worth looking at. And then just many of her um, comics about historical figures date from the 19th century. So wonderful, wonderful work. Um, what I like most about Kate Beaton's work is that it evinces a real familiarity with the Victorian period and its literature without undue reverence to the period. Her playful tongue-in-cheek representations of the Victorians and their work offers, I think, critical distance and becomes a really useful way to think about the very mundane and human ways in which the Victorians are like you and me, as well as the ways in which we've romanticized them or not given them enough credit. So check out Kate Beaton's work if you know of other um, webcomics that feature Victorians, Victorian people, things, ideas, whatever, please pass them on to me. I'd love to know about more. 
Okay, now a brief word about podcasts. As Eleanor mentioned in the last miniseries episode, the BBC's radio dramas are really important to the development of later film and TV adaptations. They're also, of course, really important to the audio drama as it thrives in podcast form today. I'm going to briefly rave about my current favorite audio drama podcast and then recommend another one, which I keep hearing good things about and plan to start listening to soon. Today, even. Who knows? Could happen. Victoriosity. You may have heard this uh, is getting a lot of warranted um, acclaim right now, is a detective comedy podcast set in, quote, even greater London in 1887, in which, to quote the show website, Inspector Archibald Fleet and journalist Clara Entwistle investigate a murder only to find themselves at the center of a conspiracy of impossible proportions. Queen Victoria and Prince Albert make frequent appearances, even though Albert is dead at this point in history, and the episodes capture the hectic and hilarious late-century tone common to fin de siècle popular fiction. I think this really draws on popular fiction, uh, which is why I mentioned it in um, the miniseries episode 5 that I just did as a possible way that neo-Victorian style works are challenging the genre's tendency to ossify a highbrow canon. If you're feeling a little bit lost right now, I just suggest going back and listening to miniseries episode 5 for that to make a bit more sense. Um, and then Wooden Overcoats. Actually, the makers of Victoriosity often recommend this podcast, which is how I heard of it. And I'm just going to quote the show's PR pitch because it explains perfectly why I should already be listening and you should too. Rudyard Fun runs a funeral home on the island of Piffling. It used to be the only one. It isn't anymore. Rudyard Fun and his equally miserable sister, Antigone, run their family's failing funeral parlor, where they get the body in the coffin in the ground on time. But one day, they find everyone enjoying themselves at the funerals of a new competitor, the impossibly perfect Eric Chapman. With their dog's body, Georgie, and a mouse called Madeline, the Funs are taking drastic steps to stay in business. According to my sources, Google, the show is set in a reimagined Victorian past. The link is in the show notes. Listen if you dare. That's it from me today. Thank you for tuning in to this summer miniseries. Next week, you can expect another episode from Eleanor that is either talking about Victorian film adaptations or YouTube miniseries, or maybe both. We haven't quite decided tune in to find out. Um, and then the week after that, we will be wrapping up our mini-series and preparing for the remainder of season two's episodes. Thanks for listening! Victorian Scribblers is written by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. All episodes are produced by me with editing assistance from Eleanor. The podcast is made possible by donations from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, head to victorianscribblers.com slash support us. After the ball, done by Mr. John J. Gaskin. A little maiden climbed an old man's Why are you single? Why live alone? Have you no know
All of the music for this podcast is courtesy of Muse Open and Free Music Archive under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio, and our closing music is George J. Gaskin's 1893 performance of After the Ball. After the ball.